0: Hall Bones considered Laurel Hill Stories number 46 for January 2023 Fathers of American Medicine part 3 Ethical Dilemmas Is a National Historic Landmark, an arboretum, a sculpture garden, a nature preserve, and an active cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for tens of thousands of visitors every year. Its sister cemetery, Laurel Hill West, located across the Schuylkill River in Bala Kinwood, was founded in 1869. It has a history and a population of its own. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University in Philadelphia, volunteer tour guide at Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West, and volunteer podcaster. When I started researching this podcast, I thought it was going to be about three different physicians with nothing in common except that they were from Philadelphia and they had led interesting lives. I soon found that they had a third thing in common they did things that now would be considered quite unethical in the practice of medicine. Dr. George McClellan, father of the famed Civil War Union general, was founder of Thomas Jefferson Medical School, but he annoyed his colleagues so much he was expelled from the board of the school that he had created. Dr. William Henry Pencoast was a famed surgeon, who performed the post-mortem examination on the 19th century conjoined twins, Chang and Eng Bunker, the original Siamese twins. That same year, he artificially impregnated a woman who had a sterile husband, but without her permission. And Dr. Samuel McClintock Hamill was one of the most prominent pediatricians in the country. But early in his career, he had conducted controversial experiments on orphans and abandoned children, some of whom were left with permanently damaged eyesight. These three physicians are the topics of today's edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, Fathers of American Medicine, Part 3, Some Ethical Dilemmas. If you mention the name George McClellan to most people in the United States, they conjure up an image of the controversial Civil War commanding general, an 1864 presidential candidate. He is one of the four Pennsylvania generals most highly honored at the Civil War Memorial in Fairmount Park, along with George Gordon Meade, Winfield Scott Hancock, and John Reynolds. He may be best remembered as the man about whom Lincoln said, If General McClellan does not want to use the Army, I would like to borrow it for a time. General McClellan is interred in Trenton, New Jersey. But if you mention the name George McClellan in Philadelphia, many people will ask you, which one? Years before General George Brenton McClellan clashed with Lincoln, his father, surgeon George McClellan, was butting heads with the Philadelphia Medical Establishment. George McClellan was born at Woodstock, Connecticut on 22 December 1796. He was descended from Highland Scotsmen; his family having immigrated from Kirkcudbright on the Dee. His great-grandfather William McClellan fought with the Jacobite army of Charles Edward Stewart at the disastrous Battle of Culloden in 1746, and like his brother-in-arms Hugh Mercer, emigrated to the American colonies shortly afterwards. George's grandfather, Samuel McClellan, was wounded in battle during the French and Indian War, and he became a businessman in Worcester, Massachusetts. When America's war for independence from Britain broke out, Samuel became commander of a county militia. After leading troops at the Battle of Lexington and Concord and Bunker Hill, Samuel was made a brigadier general in 1779. For the rest of his life, he was known as General Sam. General Sam was married to Rachel Abbey, a descendant of Massachusetts Governor William Bradford. Uh, George's father, James McClellan Esquire, was a wool merchant devoted to manufacturing interests. But he was also president of Woodstock Academy, a prestigious high school in Connecticut, which he and his brother John had founded in 1801. James married Eunice Eldridge, a woman who had lost 11 close relatives in the 1781 Battle of Fort Griswold in Groton, Connecticut. George McClellan was their only offspring. George's mother died when he was eight years old. George inherited a lot of militaristic characteristics from his relatives. From boyhood, he was noted to be fierce energetic, absolutely fearless, quick in conceiving, always sure of his conclusions, emphatic in speech, and enthusiastic about everything he undertook. He attended Yale University as a sophomore and graduated in 1816 when he was 18 years old. He then moved to Philadelphia, where he attended the University of Pennsylvania Medical School, the most prestigious in the country. He graduated in 1819. He was described as being of medium height with a large symmetrical head. These were the days of phrenology, of course. Uh, Thick hair, heavy eyebrows, a well-formed but somewhat projecting chin, high cheekbones, deep-set, quickly glancing blue eyes, a firm compressed mouth, and a manly smile. McClellan married Elizabeth Sophia Brinton, four years his junior in 1820, and he settled into medical practice at the corner of Walnut and Swanwick Street. The McClellans had five children, including George Brenton McClellan, born in 1826 and destined to be a soldier and a politician, Frederica John Hill-Brenton, who became a physician, Arthur and Mary. George McClellan was soon recognized as a bold and effective surgeon in those days when the triple threat of bleeding, pain, and infection threatened every patient who went under the knife. The concept of scientific surgery had arisen only a few years before, during the Age of Enlightenment in Europe, from 1715 to 1789. Prior to the introduction of anesthesia in the mid-19th century, the best surgeons were judged by their ability to be as swift as possible in order to minimize patient suffering. McClellan earned a reputation as a rapid surgeon in 1823 when he removed a patient's entire lower jaw, which was consumed with osteosarcoma, in less than four minutes. The child not only survived, but flourished and returned to school less than six weeks after surgery. McClellan acquired the nickname Dash. Three years later, he performed the seemingly impossible job of removing a patient's parotid gland and having the patient survive. He did these procedures on patients without benefit of general anesthesia. It was Georgia physician Crawford Long, who graduated from Penn's Medical School 20 years after McClellan, who introduced ether, but not until 1842. The concept of antiseptic surgery was also totally foreign to McClellan and his contemporaries. Progress in battling infection was not made until the Hungarian doctor Ignaz Semmelweis introduced compulsory hand-washing in 1847. That was the year of McClellan's premature death. Joseph Lister's work on antisepsis was not introduced until the 1860s. The third bugaboo of surgery, hemorrhage, was one that McClellan had mastered. In fact, his graduate thesis was entitled, The Tying of Arteries. He published his views of arresting excess bleeding from surgery in 1823, and he taught them to his students for the rest of his life. Medical education in the United States was primarily conducted through the apprentice method until the mid-19th century. The first medical school in the American colonies had been established in 1765 by John Morgan and William Shippen, Jr., young Philadelphians who had recently returned from Europe, where they had received medical degrees from Edinburgh. It was Morgan who managed to convince the trustees of the College of Philadelphia To establish a medical college. When the college opened, it had a two man faculty. It was not until 1767 that the Board of Trustees, headed by Benjamin Franklin, decided to confer degrees, and on 21 June 1768, ten men received the first medical degrees granted in the American colonies. In 1767, a second medical school was established in the colonies, this one in New York City. The next entries were not until the United States became a country. Harvard in 1782, Dartmouth in New Hampshire, 1797, Transylvania in Kentucky in 1802. And then there was an explosion of American medical schools. 26 new schools established between 1810 and 1840, and 47 more between 1840 and 1877. But that first medical school in Philadelphia, now known as the University of Pennsylvania Medical School, was still considered the best in the land, the one which other medical schools aspired to emulate. It attracted students from all over the country, and its facilities were no longer able to handle the crush. In the winter of 1817-18, The class reached 465 students and 87 graduated. The lecture rooms were crammed and many students abandoned the university campus to attend anatomy lectures being presented by its graduates, including Dr. McClellan and Dr. Eberly, who lectured to standing room only crowds at Charles Wilson Peel's Apollo Dorian Gallery. As usual, George McClellan went against the grain. He had his own ideas. He wanted his own medical school, so he could teach his theories of medicine and surgery. In the fall of 1818, he drew up a plan for a second Philadelphia Medical College, and he applied to the state legislature for a charter. The University of Pennsylvania had a lot of influence at the state level, and they feared that another school would cut into its prosperity. So they fought against that new school, and they won. McClellan's initial attempt at a new charter was unsuccessful. Now, the University of Pennsylvania Medical School started to lose its power in 1820 when a doctoral candidate, John G. Wilden, a student of Dr. James Rush, was required to excise passages from his thesis, which the Board of Trustees felt were offensive to certain members of the faculty. Wilden removed the offending passages, but after receiving his degree, he had the unexpurgated version published, but italicized. The items that had been excised were italicized when he put them back in. This incident seemed to give McClellan's desire for another medical school a second wind. He firmly believed that students would flock to the city in numbers proportioned to the increased facilities for education. In other words, if we build it, they will come. McClellan got a brilliant idea. Rather than trying to start a medical school without a supporting university, he would find a willing partner in an existing university. In 1824, he approached Jefferson College in distant Cannonsburg, West Pennsylvania. It's 20 miles southwest of Pittsburgh, more than 300 miles from Philadelphia. The city of Cannonsburg had been founded in 1791 and it received a charter for Cannonsburg Academy three years later in 1794. In 1802 it underwent a name change to Jefferson College, the first institution of higher learning west of the Alleghenies and named for the third president. McClellan and his eager partners offered Jefferson the opportunity to become connected with a medical school that was to be located in Philadelphia. Over the next two years, the trustees of Jefferson College applied to the legislature of Pennsylvania and obtained an enlargement of their charter that authorized them to appoint 10 additional trustees, but in the city of Philadelphia. And this is how Philadelphia got its second medical school. The new Jefferson Medical College was an immediate success, and it conducted its first lectures in the old Tivoli Theater on the south side of Prune Street, now Locust Street, below 6th at what is now 518 and 520 Locust. The first class, numbered 109, it came from 14 or two-thirds of the states, two foreign countries, and the District of Columbia. Directly across the street from the college, was the Walnut Street Prison for criminals and debtors. On the east side of the college was the burial grounds for free Quakers. On the western side was Washington Square, then used as the city's potter's field. And directly in back of the college was a popular ale house. Within a block or so were several churches. One wit of the time noted. The young physician's struggles are typified by the debtor's prison in front of the pauper's burial ground on the side and consolation in the rear. Almost immediately, the college started an infirmary, the first clinic established in any college in the country. The basic principle of Jefferson Medical School was that it should be practical, that it should bring the student in contact with the disease, and that it should endeavor to make him a practical physician and surgeon. When I did my residency in emergency medicine at Jefferson 160 years later, I was there from 1986 to 1989, I felt that was exactly the type of education that I was getting. I learned how to take care of sick people, perhaps the most important thing for a young physician to learn. As a teacher, McClellan was unexcelled. He was a brilliant writer, private preceptor, lecturing professor, and clinical demonstrator. Students were drawn to his enthusiasm, earnestness, intense language, great directness, and a thorough understanding of his topics. Ten men were graduated from that first class. The second commencement in 1826 saw 34 students graduated with 25 men graduating in 1828, including Dr. Samuel D. Gross, who was destined to become the greatest surgical authority this country would produce until the 20th century. Other giants of medicine taught by McClellan at Jefferson include Jacob DaCosta, Silas Ware Mitchell, Francis Xavier Durkham, and many, many others whom you have heard me mention in this podcast. After the third class was graduated, it was decided the school must be moved to better quarters, and a building was selected on tenth street above Walnut. The college moved in the summer of eighteen twenty eight. In june eighteen thirty six, doctor Robley Dunglason, who had been President Thomas Jefferson's personal physician at his deathbed on four july eighteen twenty six, came to work at the medical school named for his friend and patient. You can hear about Ropley-Dunglason in an earlier podcast I did. After another enlargement in 1838, the school was granted an independent charter from the state, giving it the same rights and privileges of the University of Pennsylvania Medical School and becoming the Jefferson Medical College of Philadelphia. The new medical college severed all its connections with the Institute in Cannonsburg. In 1865, Jefferson College merged with Washington College It is now known as Washington and Jefferson College. It's in Washington, Pennsylvania. Now, for reasons I have been unable to determine exactly, it was in this same year of 1838 that Dr. McClellan was expelled from the faculty and the board of directors of the medical school that he had founded I got clues, uh, one reminiscence from one of his colleagues. Dash was one of the great elements of his ever busy brain an outgrowth of the eccentricity of his genius. With a different mental organization, McClellan might've been an even greater man than he was and left a more enduring reputation as a medical philosopher and greater surgical authority. With all his deficiencies, however, he accomplished vast designs and as the founder of Jefferson is entitled to his imperishable credits. In other words, it sounds like he ticked off a lot of people and they threw him off of the board of the medical school that he founded. So what did he do? He decided to start another medical school. (laughs) He had been through it once and the second time was a lot easier. This time he went to the Pennsylvania College at Gettysburg and used them the same way. So the medical department of Pennsylvania College at Gettysburg was founded under his auspices, along with one of his partners in this, the famous skull collector, Dr. Samuel George Morton, whom I covered in an earlier podcast on bad science. The initial course of lectures started in November 1839. Dr. George McClellan was chair of surgery. This school was short-lived. It closed permanently in 1861, which was 14 years after McClellan's death. In 1841, when he was about 45 years old, McClellan resigned his chair and decided to spend the rest of his life in general practice and completing the textbook on the practice of surgery. While he read much, he wrote little and he took up his pen with reluctance only at the earnest and long-continued promptings of his friends. On 8 May 1847, Dr. McClellan visited his patients as usual and consulted on a difficult case with one of his colleagues. That afternoon, he was attacked with violent pains in the gastric region accompanied by vomiting. At 8 p.m. his lower extremities became cold and insensible and a little after midnight, he ceased to breathe. He was 51 years old. Autopsy found ulceration of the mucous coats of the bowels, and the immediate cause of death was perforation a few inches below the sigmoid flexure of the colon. In death, he was treasured by those with whom he worked. One of his biographers noted, kindness to the poor was a prominent characteristic of Dr. McClellan throughout his whole professional career. Another colleague wrote, Dr. McClellan possessed a sensitive and generous spirit blended with a confiding manner that strongly marked his intercourse with men. His feelings were quickly excited and warmly expressed at the sense of unkindness or injustice But there was a magnanimity of his nature that readily forgave an injury. He often regretted the differences into which he was led by the impulsive indiscretion of youth, and emphatically declared that were it possible to live that part of his life over again, his course would be influenced by greater conciliation and forbearance. In connection with this subject, however, it must not be overlooked that the period between the years 1820 and 1830 was one of peculiar professional disunion, and that Dr. McClellan, in common with many of his medical brethren, was hurried into controversies which, if they cannot be forgotten, should at least be remembered with charity. George McClellan is buried at Laurel Hill East, Section L, Lot 46. His wife, Elizabeth, outlived him by 42 years. His son, Dr. John Hill Brinton McClellan, finished his surgical textbook. He did not live to see his namesake rise to the rank of general and lead the Union Army of the Potomac during the Civil War. He is remembered today by the medical school which he founded as namesake for the George McClellan Surgical Honor Society. When I was in medical school many years ago I learned the eponym for a tumor in the apex or the top of the lung. It's called a pencoast tumor. It's usually caused by small cell lung cancer and it's often diagnosed only after it invades local tissues including a bundle of nerves called the stellate ganglion. This leads to the classic triad of Horner's syndrome, ptosis, drooping of the upper lid, meiosis, constriction of the pupil, and anhydrosis, decreased sweating on the affected side of the face. Penco's tumor is a diagnosis that I only made twice in my long career in emergency medicine. On one of my first visits to Laurel Hill West, I saw a tombstone in the Norriton section with that name Pencoast on it, and I wondered if I had found the grave of the man who first described the syndrome in 1924 but a little research showed that the tumor's namesake was a radiologist named Dr. Henry K. Pancoast, an 1898 graduate of Penn, who died in 1939. He's interred in Valley Forge. A little more research told me that the Pancoast I had discovered, William Henry Pancoast, was every bit as interesting as his distant relative, if not more so. In addition to performing an autopsy on the world-famous conjoined twins Chang and Eng Bunker, it was Pancoast who performed the first known successful and outrageously unethical artificial insemination of a human being in the United States. Born in 1834, William Henry Pancoast was the second child of Quakers Dr. Joseph Pancoast and Rebecca Abbott. Joseph Pankost had succeeded George McClellan as chair of surgery at Jefferson when McClellan was thrown out, and he was a distinguished lecturer and author. He and his wife had ten children, of whom five reached adulthood. After completing his studies at Haverford College, William entered Jefferson Medical College and in 1856 began his career as a doctor of medicine. As was the Vogue in that era, Dr. Pankos toured the European continent, spending two years studying medicine in London, Paris, and Vienna. When he returned to Philadelphia in 1858, he established a large clinic, at charity hospital. And during the Civil War, he served as surgeon-in-chief and second officer of a military hospital. After the war, he resumed medical practice, and in 1871, he was named a Demonstrator of Anatomy, at Jefferson. Through a combination of skill, tradition, and probably nepotism, he replaced his father as a full professor in 1873, teaching descriptive and surgical anatomy. In 1874, he was presented with the rare opportunity to perform an autopsy on the most famous conjoined twins in the world, Chang and Eng, the so-called Siamese twins. Chang and Eng had been born in 1811 in Siam, modern-day Thailand, to a Chinese father and a Thai mother. They were joined together by a fleshy tube at the sternum, or the breastbone. Their father died when they were young, and their mother raised them in the Buddhist religion. The boys learned early to coordinate their movements together, and they were lively youths. They were running and swimming and playing with other children, who ignored the fact that they were tethered together at the chest. In 1829, the twins were signed to a five-year contract to do a world tour on exhibition in freak shows. They were 18 years old and they took this as an adventure. Five years stretched into ten and they made enough money to purchase 150 acres in North Carolina and to settle down to farming. They purchased several slaves and they hired women as housekeepers. By 1840, they spoke fluent English, they had become citizens, and they had voted. In April of 1843, Chang and Eng, who had taken the surname Bunker, married sisters, Sarah and Adelaide Yates. They considered themselves Americans. And in 1845, they purchased 650 acres, five miles south of Mount Airy, and had separate homes built for their families about a mile and a half apart. They lived a life of country gentlemen and wealthy plantation owners, dividing their lives into three-day segments at each household. They became very good at chopping wood, sometimes using all four hands together, or they took turns swinging, and they raised families. Chang and Adelaide had ten children, while Ang and Sarah had eleven None of them were born as twins. With emancipation and the end of the Civil War, the brothers lost all of their enslaved people and found themselves nearly penniless. Once again, they went on the road to be exhibited, but this time as their own bosses. Each of them actually took one of their own children along also. Now, what did these two men tethered for life share in common? They had totally different nervous and digestive systems. And It was only in the middle of the fleshy band that was holding them together that both could actually feel touch or pressure simultaneously. Chang was a heavy drinker, but Eng never felt the effects of his brother's excesses. He didn't get intoxicated and he didn't have a hangover. In 1870, Chang had a stroke which left his right leg fairly useless. That means that Eng now had to carry his brother about. It was about this time that they traveled to Philadelphia to consult with prominent surgeons about the feasibility of being separated. They had been thinking of their own mortality, and the thought of one of the brothers carrying around the other's dead body haunted them. The consulting surgeons, Dr. William Henry Pencoast and Dr. Harrison Allen, declined the opportunity to do the procedure. They did not know what was in that band. This is way before radiography and ultrasound and uh, contrast studies to find out what exactly was in that band. In January 1874, Chang developed bronchitis, which turned rapidly to pneumonia and impaired his breathing. On 17 January, one of Eng's sons checked on the sleeping twins and told his father, "'Uncle Chang is dead.'" Eng responded, Then I am going. And within two hours, he too was dead. No longer a practicing Buddhist, his last words were, May the Lord have mercy on my soul. Chang and Eng Bunker were sixty-three years old. Apparently, one of their last requests had been to be buried together. Without embalming, they were placed in a temporary grave in Eng's basement awaiting a spring thaw for final interment. And when doctors Pancoast and Allen heard of the twins' death, they rushed to North Carolina and consulted with the widows. They extracted permission from them to exhume and embalm the bodies and then take them to Philadelphia for an autopsy. They promised that although they would study the tether that held them together, they would not sever it. The autopsy took place 15 days after the death of the twins. Delayed embalming and cold weather had prevented serious decomposition. The autopsy results were first presented at a special meeting of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia on February 18th, and then published the next year in a monograph called Report of an Autopsy on the Bodies of Chang and Eng Bunker, commonly known as the Siamese Twins, by Harrison Allen, M.D., the bunker twin bodies were displayed at this meeting, one month after their deaths. A brief summary of the autopsy: Allen and Pankos noted that Chang was five foot two and a half, Ang was five foot three and a half. In an observation of their body surfaces, they noted that both Chang and Ang had identical pubic hair, black on the right side and iron gray on the left side. The band connecting the two bodies was broader above than below. It had a circumference of nine inches. The upper portion of the band was taut between the bodies. It put tension on the xiphoid process, or that cartilaginous lower end of the sternum. If you feel your own sternum, go all the way down to the bottom. There's this little arrow of bone and cartilage there. You can actually push back and forth, push in back and forth. The band included portions of the peritoneal cavity of both men, along with a thin strip of liver. The doctors concluded that they had made the correct decision, and that any attempt at separation probably would have caused the deaths of both men through exsanguination, blood loss. After the autopsy, a plaster cast of Chang and Eng was made. It's on display at the Mutter Museum, along with their shared liver. Their bodies were returned to North Carolina unseparated for final interment in their final resting place. When Dr. Harrison Allen died in 1897, he was interred in the Lensdown section of Laurel Hill West. The same year that William Henry Penkos performed the autopsy on Chang and Eng, he was instigator of another event which went unmentioned for a quarter of a century. It only became known in a letter to the editor of The Medical World in April 1919. This was 12 years after Dr. Pancoast had died. Next few minutes are a direct quote. Editor, Medical World. It has been 25 years since Professor Pancoast performed the first artificial impregnation of a woman in the Sansom Street Hospital of Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia. At that time, the procedure was so novel, so peculiar in its human ethics that the six young men of the senior class who witnessed, that spelled W-I-T-N-E-S-T, who witnessed the operation were pledged to absolute secrecy. The circumstances of the case were about as follows. A wealthy merchant of Philadelphia consulted Professor Pancoast to learn why his home was childless. The man was 41 years of age, of sound body as far as he knew, and had a good family history, and had never suffered from any serious illness in his life, eh, barring a slight attack of gonorrhea in his youth while sowing the proverbial wild oats. His wife was 10 years his junior, a perfect picture of health and a product of one of the old Quaker families of wealth and distinction in Quakerville. An appointment was made with both of them for an examination at the Sansom Street Hospital, and a section of the senior class, of which I was one, was called upon to assist the professor. The supposition on the part of the professor was that the woman was unable to conceive because of some impediment which possibly might be removed. Therefore, she was examined first. The exam was very complete, almost as perfect as an army examination, but not the slightest abnormal condition was discovered. As a matter of public interest, I will say that during this examination was discovered for the first time, as far as I know, the suction function of the uterus which takes place during orgasm. The man was then examined, and while no physical defect was discoverable, the spermatic fluid was shown by the microscopic examination to be absolutely void of spermatozoans. This, of course, cleared up the situation at once, and the man was informed that the fault was his, and probably due to the results of the gonorrhea of his youth. Professor Pankost at that time considered the trouble as easily remedied, and he began a course of treatment which he thought proper. But, after two months' careful attention, the man showed no change whatsoever. And the professor then concluded that the primary seminal ducts were occluded by the former inflammation extending upward from the urethra. A joking remark by one of the class, "Eh, the only solution to this problem is to call in the hired man, was the probable incentive, that's I-N-C-E-N-T-I-V, no e, was the probable incentive to the plan of action which follows. Get ready. The woman was chloroformed, and with a hard rubber syringe, some fresh semen from the best-looking member of the class was deposited in the uterus, and the cervix slightly plugged with gauze. Neither the man nor the woman knew the nature of what had been done at the time, but subsequently the professor repented of his action, and he explained the whole matter to the husband. Strange as it may seem, the man was delighted with the idea, and conspired with the professor in keeping from the lady the actual way by which her impregnation was brought about. In due course of time, the lady gave birth to a son, and he had characteristic features not of the senior student, but of the willing but impossible father. That boy is now a businessman in the city of New York, and I have shaken hands with him within the last year. (laughs) The letter goes on to praise artificial impregnation as something which might result in, quote, giving some men children of wonderful endowment in place of half-witted, evil-inclined, disease-disposed offspring. In other words, the letter's author skates dangerously close to the concepts of eugenics. He signed the letter with his real name, which sounds like a pseudonym. It's A.D. Hard of Marshall, Minnesota. But I confirm that Addison Davis Hard entered Jefferson in the 1884 session He wrote a thesis on popliteal aneurysm, received his degree in 1885, and left to begin a career of general practice in Minnesota. There had been prior attempts at artificial insemination. In fact, they were performed by an earlier Jefferson graduate, J. Marion Sims, class of 1835. Sims called his procedure ethereal copulation, and its success rate was one pregnancy, in 55 attempts, and that pregnancy ended in a miscarriage. Sims, known as the father of gynecology, was once held in the highest esteem. It is now known that he perfected his techniques on vesicovaginal fistulas on unanesthetized enslaved women, people who were in no position to decline the procedure. Sims was the subject of the first statue in the United States in honor of a physician. It was erected in New York City's Bryant Park in 1894 and stayed there for more than 120 years until word got out at what he had done early in his days of experimentation. The statue was removed in 2018. Anyway, after Dr. Hard's letter, responses poured into medical world, both praising and condemning Dr. Pancoast and Dr. Hard. Pancoast was, of course, no longer around, to either refute or confirm the story. One correspondent claimed that he personally had known Dr. Pancoast, and in his estimation, the late physician was a gentleman who would not have stooped to the raping of a patient under anesthesia. Now, one question remained definitively unanswered. Why would a general practitioner from Minnesota travel to New York City to shake the hand of a successful 25-year-old youth. It seems that in the opinion of all his classmates at Jefferson, Addison David Hard was by far the best looking medical student in their class. Dr. William Henry Pancoast was married twice. His first wife, Marianne Gertrude Lewis, was 23 when they married in 1866. She bore him four children. The second, a daughter named Gertrude Laurie Pankost, was born in 1869 and grew up to marry the Polish born violinist Timothy Adamowski, who was the founder and the first conductor of the Boston Pops Orchestra. They are buried at Laurel Hill West. I will do a podcast about Timothy Adamowski and other violinists in the future. Their fourth and last child, William Howard Pankost, was born on 10 October 1873. Mary Ann died five weeks later, and she was interred at Woodland Cemetery in West Philadelphia. Dr. Pancoast remarried in 1875 to Charlotte Matilda Robb, a 23-year-old with whom he had no more children. He retired from Jefferson at age 51 in 1885. He died in 1897 at age 63 is interred at Laurel Hill West in the Norriton section. It's within sight of the conservatory, along with Charlotte, Gertrude, and Timothy Adamowski. Were it not for his unethical insemination of one of his patients, he would probably be forgotten today. If you are enjoying All Bones Considered and Biographical Bites from Bala, please tell a friend. That is our best method of advertising, person-to-person. Also, if you think of it, leave a review or at least leave a star rating. If you look at Apple Podcasts, you will see there are 27 ratings, all of them five-star for the podcast, and there are six comments Now, granted, this is a niche podcast. It is specifically about people buried at two cemeteries. Despite that, there have been about 23,000 downloads in the years that I've been doing this. But let's see, 23,000 downloads, 27 star ratings. That's like one-star rating for every, I don't know, 850, 900 downloads. I'd like to see more than that, if you don't mind. If you think of it, just leave a review and leave a rating. But especially, tell a friend. You can get in touch with me whenever you like, joe at net. I am very good about responding to email we have some upcoming programs in January, even though it's going to be cold some of the days. That's just a chance you take. There is a Hot Spots and Storied Plots tour on January 14th at 10 a.m. That is at Laurel Hill East. Shane Russell is going to be your guide for that. Shane gives really nice tours. I think you'll like that. As does Laura Lewis. Laura is doing a Hotspots and Storied Plots tour on the 27th of January at 10 a.m. at Laurel Hill East. As usual, there is one Sacred Spaces and Storied Places tour at Laurel Hill West. That will be on January 28th at 10 a.m. Nicole Tell is your guide for that. Aaron Greenberg is giving a tour at Laurel Hill East on January 22nd. Aaron is our Arboretum Manager, and he is going to talk about some of his favorite plant specimens focusing on prominent evergreen trees, which you can tell by their bark, their branch arrangement, berries, and buds. And he will talk about especially trees with historical significance, Aaron gives great tours. All of these tour guides are really good. <laughs> You're going to have to take my word on that until you hear them and you go, oh, yeah, now I know what he's talking about. And then I am doing part two of my snake symbolism tour on January 31st. Is that a snake? I did Laurel Hill East in part one in December. now I'm going to do part two, Laurel Hill West, all of the mausoleums that have snakes on them and uh, stories about people who are buried there. Finally, this is true for January only. If you go back to one of the early podcasts I did, uh, it's called The Other Side of Paradise, and I talked about one of my discoveries at Laurel Hill East, the the priest, uh, Monsignor, Cyril Sigourney Webster Fay. He kind of grabbed my mind for a while and I actually wrote a play about him and much to my surprise and delight I submitted it to Allens Lane Arts Center and they decided that they would do a reading of it. So if you want to know more about this cross-dressing heavily perfumed 300-pound albino priest who mentored F. Scott Fitzgerald and did a whole lot of other cool things. Come to the reading. It's at Allen's Lane in Mount Airy. It is on January 27th, Friday, at 7 p.m. And you can reserve a place. It's no charge. If you don't want to pay anything, that's fine. But they offer you a choice. You can come for nothing. You can pay ten bucks to the organization. You can pay twenty bucks to the organization. Whatever feels right for you. Uh, we're going to let you in one way or another. Go to allenslane.org/readers-theater. And theater is spelled the American way, not the British way. And that way you could reserve your seats and believe it or not, they're starting to go. We've got a bunch of folks who've already ordered tickets for it. A lot of people who want to learn more about Father Fay. So that is what is coming up in January. I hope to see you at the cemetery. Let's get back to the show. Depending upon whom you asked, Dr. Sam Hamill was one of the bright stars in the early days of pediatric medicine in the United States or he was a heartless cad who thoroughly enjoyed torturing little children and babies with his abhorrent experiments. Although he was the fourth person to carry his name, Sam Hamill was not the great-grandson of the original, but the grandson. The family patriarch, Reverend Samuel McClintock Hamill, was born in Norristown, Montgomery County, in 1812. Reverend Sam was the third headmaster of the Lawrence Classical and Commercial High School in Mercer County, New Jersey, for 50 years. It's one of the oldest college preparatory schools in the country. It was founded in 1810 as the Maidenhead Academy by Presbyterian clergyman Isaac Van Arsdale Brown. Currently, it's the Lawrenceville School that was adopted during its refounding in 1883. Mercer County is, of course, named for Continental Army War Hero General Hugh Mercer who was interred at Laurel Hill East. The original building at Lawrenceville is still called Hamill House, and among its many graduates are Walt Disney Company Chief Executive Michael Eisner and rock musician and actor Huey Lewis. Reverend Sam Hamill, with his wife Matilda Margareta Green, had eight children, only three of whom reached adulthood. Samuel McClinick Hamill Jr. was born in 1845, but he died three years later. As was common at that time, a son born ten years later in 1858 was also given the patriarch's name, thus becoming Sam III. Now, by the time that Sam III had children, his nephew, Sam IV, had been born to his brother Robert and his wife, So Sam the Third's son became Sam the Fifth. Robert had attended Jefferson College until 1839, and then he studied at Princeton Theological Seminary. He became a trustee of Lafayette College in Easton, Pennsylvania, which had become affiliated with the Presbyterian Church in 1854. He married Margaret Elizabeth Lyon. Samuel McClintock Hamill IV was born in 1864 in Montgomery County, the Reverend Bob and his wife. He was one of four boys and two girls. Sam Hamill attended Princeton College and graduated in 1885. That was before it became a university in 1896. And then he graduated from the School of Medicine, University of Pennsylvania, in 1888. After internship, he started general practice in Philadelphia and started restricting his practice to pediatrics in 1901. The first hospital for children in North America had been founded in 1855 on Bright Street between Pine and Lombard by three physicians, all of whom are now interred at Laurel Hill East. Francis West Lewis, interred in Section I, Thomas Houston Bocce, interred in Section 15, and Richard A.F. Penrose in Section 7. Penrose was, of course, the father of six boys that I talked about in an earlier podcast. From 1866 to 1916, the Children's Hospital was located between Locust and Walnut on 22nd Street, just a couple of blocks from Rittenhouse Square. It began its affiliation with the University of Pennsylvania in 1919. Hamel had the fortune to study with the great Theodore Escherich in Vienna in 1905. Escherich was a German-Austrian pediatrician who was an early pioneer in experimental medicine rather than descriptive medicine, which was falling out of favor. The bacterium Escherichia coli is named in his honor. Dr. Sam's eyes were open to the research methods of French physiologist Claude Bernard and the father of modern-day pathology, Rudolf Virchow. This placed Dr. Sam at the forefront of modern medicine at Penn. He also gained the reputation of being somewhat of a pompous dandy, always immaculately dressed with carefully trimmed hair and mustache, a man of elegant manners who always seemed to be in a quarrel with his fellow physicians. He set the highest standards for himself and expected those with whom he worked to be just as meticulous. He was always amiable to friends, but those who did not know him well could not be blamed for thinking of him as a cocky firebrand. He developed a deep friendship with Dr. David Edsall, controversial chair of medicine, who was later a co-founder of the Harvard School of Public Health and dean of Harvard Medical College. In the early 1900s, Hamill had attracted notice from another up-and-coming young Turk of research, Dr. Kenneth Blackfan, who later became a pioneer in pediatric surgery. Black Fan had become bored in private practice with his father, and he took a position at the St. Vincent's Foundling Hospital in Ticone to study under Dr. Sam Hamill, who was 20 years his senior. The hospital was located at 7201 Milnor Street, only a few blocks from the location of the now well known Four Seasons Total Landscaping. This foundling hospital had been opened in 1856 to care for children who were either orphaned or abandoned. In those days when contraception was unknown or ineffective and illegitimacy was a stigma for both mother and child, religious organizations had set up homes for foundlings or abandoned children. Any child would be taken in, no questions asked. Many of these homes actually had a bassinet or a cradle by the front door where someone could abandon a baby unseen and then either ring a bell or knock on the door and leave without anybody knowing who left the baby there. And foundling homes were not necessarily hospitals, although some of them did try to offer rudimentary medical care. The conditions in these homes were mostly appalling. It's not unusual for 80% of the children who were left there to die before they reached an age before they were sent out into the world, usually 12 years for boys and a few years older for girls who were kept to help with household chores and care of younger children. Infants under the age of one year had a horrendous 90% mortality rate. Hamill and Blackfans saw this sea of infants and children as an untapped group to be studied, both observationally and with carefully designed experiments. They concentrated on the diagnosis of tuberculosis, which was still a scourge in America. In 1908, Samuel McClintock Hamill was lead author in a paper published in the Archives of Internal Medicine called A Comparison of the Von Perkett CalMet, and Moro tuberculin tests and their diagnostic value. After an introduction to the concentrations of tuberculin used in each part of the study, the authors discuss, quote, material used. The material was the children. Practically all of our patients were under eight years of age, and all but 26 of them were inmates of St. Vincent's Home, an institution with a population of about 400, composed of foundlings, orphans, and destitute children. We purposefully deferred the physical examination of these children until after the tests had been applied, for two reasons. First, in order to be unbiased in our interpretation of the results, and second, in order to make ourselves especially vigilant in searching for tuberculous lesions in those who reacted. There were four primary tests which could be used to test for tuberculosis. There was the skin test or the Von Perquet test. It's very similar to the MANTU test or the PPD that's used throughout the world today. A tiny amount of liquid is introduced under the upper layer of the skin. Back then they would scrape the skin to make it red. It was similar to the way that inoculation or vaccination used to take place with smallpox. And if this is done properly, even now with the tiny needle that we use 30 gauge needle, which is about as small as you can get, um, you just barely put it under the surface of the skin and introduce a tiny amount of liquid, maybe a tenth of a milliliter. If it's done right, it doesn't even cause the skin to bleed. Then there was the Morrow test, which was discovered by Ernst Morrow, a partner of Theodore Escherich's. This involved a deeper injection of the liquid. There was a test where the tuberculin solution was mixed in a paste and spread on the skin to see if that would cause a local reaction. And then finally, there was the Calmet conjunctival test. This involved instilling the liquid directly onto the eyeball and determining if there's a reaction in the form of redness. Albert Calmet was a French physician who developed the Bacillus Calmet-Guerin or BCG vaccine against tuberculosis. It's seldom used in the United States. Calmet also developed the first snake antivenom. Hamel and his partners used the same 140 children for all four tests to help determine which children had subclinical tuberculosis, which might require isolation and special care. And before starting the study, Hamill had secured cooperation from the directors of St. Vincent's. Even the sisters caring for the children had assented to the plan. There were no parents available to ask for permission. These were orphans. These were abandoned children. But... When some of the infants and children developed severely red eyes, the supervising nuns completely changed their mind. They actually leaked word to the newspapers and other members of the press. And suddenly these doctors were accused of causing unneeded discomfort to helpless children simply for the satisfaction of seeing children suffer. Now, this was at a time when the general public was finding out about painful procedures being performed on lab animals, including the horrifying vivisection, vivo from life, and sexio from cutting. Anti-vivisection clubs had grown up across the country, and efforts were being made to stop all medical experiments on any living animals or humans. Diana Belay's president of the New York Anti-Vivisection Society, published a scathing article in a 1910 edition of Cosmopolitan magazine. In the most accusatory prose possible, she dove into the Hamel study, especially the CalMet test. Hamel had shown that the CalMet test was most efficient and most accurate, but individual children's eyes could have unpredictable results when exposed to the inoculum two children developed purulent or pus-producing conjunctivitis. Six had recurrent conjunctivitis, and there was one case of keratocyclitis with a large central corneal ulcer, which was almost sure to lead to vision impairment for the rest of that child's life. Ms. Belays described the children. The little children would lie in their beds moaning all night from the pain in their eyes. They kept their little hands pressed over their eyes, unable to sleep from the sensations they had to undergo. Water would stream from their eyes so continuously that deep grooves formed on the sides of their faces. The article was devastating. No more studies were conducted, or at least no more published, and Sam Hamill quietly returned to his practice of pediatrics. His budding career in research stopped by the bad publicity. And the bad results. In 1911, Hamill joined Dr. Charles Fife to develop a Department of Children's Hospital on the edge of Fairmount Park for the care of summer diarrhea. At this time, Children's Hospital had no accommodations for infants under two years, so Hamill and Fife opened the first hospital for babies at Seventh and Delancey. Hamill also helped establish the Philadelphia Child Health Society and served as its president for many years. And the Fife-Hamill Memorial Health Center existed until 1960, proudly carrying Dr. Sam Hamill's name. During the Great War, he was chair of the National Child Welfare Committee, Council of National Defense, member of the medical board of this council, and director of child welfare for the Council of National Defense. In 1930, Dr. Sam Hamill popped back into national news once again when President Herbert Hoover appointed him as head of the medical section of the third White House Conference on Child Health and Protection, every anti-vivisection society and humane society in the country sent telegrams and letters of protest to President Hoover demanding Hamill's removal and calling attention to his incriminating record in experimenting upon orphan children. After some months during which these protests were quietly ignored, a representative of one of these protesting societies called upon Dr. H.E. Barnard, the official director of the conference, to inquire what Mr. Hoover proposed to do about Dr. Hamill. Why, any thought of dismissing Dr. Hamill is preposterous, of course, replied the conference director. He's the greatest authority on child health and welfare in the world. He was on that account selected and invited to serve as chairman of the medical section of the conference. One does not dismiss an invited guest, concluded Dr. Barnard with a smile. When reminded of the St. Vincent's home affair, the director made an impatient gesture and said, Oh, well, that was 22 years ago, and what of it? While those experiments were unfortunate in some respects, yet by means of them and others, Dr. Hamill perfected the tuberculin test for children until now it is absolutely safe and 100% accurate. After he retired, Dr. Sam Hamill stayed in touch with many young pediatricians, whom he said helped him stay young. In 1939, he was awarded the Strittmatter Matter Gold Medal by the County Medical Society. It is the society's most prestigious award and was established in nineteen twenty-three in the name of Dr. Isidore Paul Strittmatter, longtime Philadelphia surgeon. Sam's beloved wife Lila, a member of Colonial Dames of America and the Acorn Club, died in nineteen forty-seven, leaving her three hundred sixty-eight thousand dollar estate to Sam and her three children. She was buried in the Kennedy family plot at Laurel Hill East, just a few dozen feet from the Fittler obelisk. It overlooks the Schuylkill. There across the street, neighbor from Monsignor Sigourney Webster Fay. And on 3 May 1948, Sam died at his home at 1822 Spruce Street. He was interred with his wife in the same plot. If he is remembered today at all, he is either worshipped or vilified depending on who you ask. January edition of Biographical Bites from Bala with Laurel Hill West stories. I will tell you of the remarkable life and afterlife of Anna Meister, who one day decided she was tired of being a seamstress and instead declared that she was Elamar Jehovah Miramita, the third person of the Holy Trinity. Several of her fellow South Philadelphia immigrants got swept up in her new religion and even 20 years after her death, The followers kept a shrine to her at their house. She's interred at Laurel Hill West, and the podcast will be available on 15 January, 2023. The February episode of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories celebrates black history. James Alexander Batts, M.D., a giant of obstetrics for black Philadelphians for many decades. Alfred Bishop, Ph.D., a nuclear engineer who helped design cooling rods for nuclear reactors, and Douglas Jocko Henderson, pioneering radio broadcaster, and a man whom Questlove called unofficially the first MC of rap music. That will be available on February 15th, 2023. Laurel Hill East is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia. It's an easy walk from the bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny for SEPTA buses R1 and 61. Admission is free, as is parking in the lot across the street, although spaces are very limited. There's an app you can download for a self-guided tour through its 78 acres. Laurel Hill West is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Ballackinwood with parking at the main entrance and at the Bell Tower. Your best bet for public transportation is to take the SEPTA Regional Rail to Maniunk or one of the many buses to the Wissahickon Transfer Center on Ridge Avenue. Then cross the Schuylkill River on the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge and come up Writer's Ferry Road to the entrance near the Pet Cemetery. There are two self-guided walking tours of Laurel Hill West that you will find with the podcast. One goes from the Pincoid entrance to the Barmouth entrance, and the other is in the opposite direction. Both Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West are open from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. from now through March. We welcome dog walkers, bike riders, photographers, painters, bird watchers, nature buffs, tree and plant lovers, and strollers, both the two-footed and four-wheeled variety. Both Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West are open for frequent historic tours. Find out more at laurelhillphl.com. If you follow us on Instagram and Facebook, you'll get a daily reminder of our inhabitants and activities. You can also follow All Bones Considered on Instagram and Facebook. And once you've fallen in love with these hotspots, become a friend of Laurel Hill you'll have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year, including some inside-the-mausoleum visits and two annual members-only podcasts all bones considered Laurel Hill stories. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. Our theme song, Names at Peace, was written and performed by local artist James Harrow. All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories is researched, written, narrated, and produced by me, Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University. Reminding you to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. You can contact me at joe at joelex.net. Stick around to hear the references that I use for this podcast. And until the next time we meet, Stay safe, stay well. For information on George McClellan, M.D., several sources which I did find online. One is called Biographical Notice of the Late George McClellan, M.D. It's by Tata Samuel George Morton, you know, the skull guy. He read this before the Philadelphia College of Physicians on September 4th, 1849, and then had it printed. It is available online in PDF format. From the Jefferson site, I found the Jefferson Medical College of Philadelphia, 1826-1904, a history. It's edited by George M. Gould, and is copyright 1904. I also found that online. Then there is Memoir of George McClellan, M.D. by William Derrick, D-A-R-R-A-C-H. This is from 1847. And this was printed on the faculty of the medical department of Pennsylvania College. So this is McClellan's second life when he started his second medical school. And finally, the biggie is called History of the Jefferson Medical College of Philadelphia. It's by James F. Gailey, G-A-Y-L-E-Y, with biographical sketches of the early professors. Copyrighted 1858, Philadelphia, Joseph M. Wilson is the printer on this. It has lots of information on McClellan, plus some cool pictures of the early homes of Jefferson Medical College. As far as William Henry Pencoast, the report of an autopsy on the bodies of Chang and Eng Bunker, commonly known as the Siamese twins. Harrison Allen, the other doctor who did the autopsy, took credit on this. It was published in 1875, and you can find it online in the Welcome Collection. That's welcome with two L's, welcomecollection.org. It's a 65-page PDF that goes into anatomical detail of their autopsy. Then there's an article called The Siamese Twins. The source on this is the British Medical Journal, March 14, 1874, Volume 1, number 689, March fourteenth, eighteen 1874, pages, pages 359 to 363. Let's see if there's an author on this. I think they just copied stuff out of the Pen Coast and Harrison Autopsy, because yeah, there's no author on that. The Letter to Medical World by Dr. Hard is April 1909, And it's only two pages, but it caused a bit of a firestorm, obviously. Plus, of course, Pancoast was not around anymore to defend himself. But there is that two-page letter that started this whole mess. That led to lots of other (laughs) interesting articles, shall we say. There's one from Fertility and Sterility, Volume 16, Issue 1, January 1st nineteen sixty five. It's called The Impregnators by A. T. Gregoire, PhD, and Robert C. Mayer, MD. It's pages one thirty to one what's the other page? there it is, one thirty four. And then a more current one from a website called Digging History, Uncovering History One Story at a Time. Test tube tots, a twenty first century moral dilemma. By, and that's with a question mark, by Sharon Hall. She published it on June 15, 2019, and talks about Pankos artificial insemination. For Sam Hamill, the big article, of course, is a comparison of the Von Perkett, Calmet, and Moro tuberculin tests and their diagnostic value. as by Samuel McSee Hamill, M.D., Howard Childs, Carpenter, M.D., and Thomas A. Cope, MD. That's from the Archives of Internal Medicine 1909. And that's a long one. That is pages four o five through four fifty-four. In response to that came Vivisection, Animal and Human by Diana Belles, and that was from Cosmopolitan Magazine nineteen ten, volume forty nine, pages two hundred sixty seven to 273. And then the chapter of a book called In the Name of the Child, Health and Welfare, 1880 to 1940. This was published in 1992. Chapter four uh, is by Susan E. Letterer, L-E-D-E-R-E-R. It's called Orphans as Guinea Pigs, American Children and Medical Experimenters. And that's pages 96 to 123. It was published by Routledge, R-O-U-T-L-E-D-G-E, out of London. If you're curious about experimentation that was done on children in those days, I actually got a couple of books. One is called The Medical Voodoo. It's by Annie Riley Hale. uh, 1935, Gotham House Publishers. And she... For one thing, she's an anti-vaxxer, and she makes that clear from the beginning. It's a teardown of all medicine to that time that involves human experimentation and what she calls the myth of immunology. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a weird book. And then Against Their Will, The Secret History of Medical Experimentation on Children in Cold War America. That's by Alan Hornblum, Judith Newman, Gregory Dober. That is copyright 2013 by Palgrave Macmillan. I hope you enjoyed the show. I hope you come back for more with the next episodes of All Bones Considered and Biographical Bites from Bala. Until then, stay safe, stay well.